0: Welcome to the Taste of Prague podcast, a podcast by the Taste of Prague Food Tours about two things we love the most, travel and food, in the two places we love the most, Prague and just about anywhere else. Thank you for tuning in. Hi guys, uh, this is Jan from Taste of Prague. Thank you for tuning in to today's podcast. Now, before we get to the interview, and it's a great one, I promise, I have a few announcements to make. Now, it's been bothering me That the first episodes, the first three episodes, were with men, with with guys. Uh, We wanted to get like a female voice in this too. So uh, I approached two ladies who I know very well and they have a lot to say about, you know, Czech uh, food and um, the Czech food scene. And they both said, yes, we're going to be happy with an interview in Czech. And this is something that. I've always known it would become a problem later on that you know I will run out of people who want to chat in English especially locals who want to chat in English uh, with me Uh, I just didn't know it would happen so fast so long story short we were thinking what we're gonna do we were thinking okay let's shoot a video and subtitle it but I'm like you know who's gonna subtitle I'm not gonna subtitle this Um, Susie had an idea let's transcribe it into English and again like can we I'm, I started doing a podcast partly because I wanted to write less, not write more. And like, who would read that transcript anyway? And I even reached out to some of my colleagues, you know, my former colleagues, because I'm an, I'm an interpreter by, you know, education, that they would maybe interpret it. But I don't think that would be a viable choice either. So, long story short, next week will uh, be the next week's episode will probably be in check. We're going to start a separate podcast, Taste of Prague podcast, in Czech only. I'm very sorry about this. Now, um, if some foreign, you know, listeners want to listen to it, just give me a shout, and I'll just fig- maybe we'll figure out something. If somebody has an idea about a great technology that would like maybe transcribe the audio into text reliably, and then translate it into English. I'm talking Czech text. Um, Check speech into text and that that text needs to be translated into English just let me know uh, maybe there is something I haven't looked into it very much but long story short uh, we're gonna start a new podcast next week and it's gonna be in Czech because we know some people that have a lot to say they just don't want to say it in English for you know various reasons I understand that some people even if they speak English they're not very comfortable giving interviews in English so that's totally fine the second announcement that eventually down the road we're going to do an inter- we're going to do a podcast episode or two about taste of prong specifically maybe a, like a q and a uh, podcast that will let you ask questions and then maybe some interviews with the members of the team of uh, taste of prong i think that would be actually fun and it give some insight into what we really do um, and finally again down the road we're going to take this podcast on the road And when we travel, we're going to interview people in those destinations, Um, you know, some people that we will choose that are representatives of, let's say, the food scene or the coffee scene, Um, and they ideally should give us tips about that specific destination that we think would be beneficial, but simply great for our listeners and for us too. So that's the three announcements. Um, And now let's move ahead to the interview. And I'm really happy about today's interview because it's with someone who's um, very dear to me and that's Mark Baker. Like, you might think, Mark who? I haven't heard of Mark Baker. Well, you know, as I said, I, I'm a major in translation studies and you often talk about the invisibility of the translator that you don't really know. You're often reading a translated text, you don't know who translated it. And the same really, The same thing really applies to guidebooks so you may hold a guidebook, you may buy a guidebook for a specific destination, but you don't really know who the author is. Now, if you're holding a guidebook by, let's say, Lonely Planet, Photos or Frommers uh, that covers anything within the Central Eastern European region, the odds are it has been written by Mike ba- Mark Baker. Mark Baker is a travel writer who's been living in Prague on and off for about 30 years, not well, just under 30 years, and he's a tremendous guy has incredible insight into travel writing and we already did one interview a year ago you may have already uh, known that i tried to do the podcast a year ago and it didn't really work out so i'm really happy that he uh, gave me the opportunity to speak to him again and we covered a lot of issues i really wanted to get to the nitty-gritty of making a uh, guidebook You know, how is it made? Who calls the shots? Who makes decisions? How do you research for a guidebook? You know, uh, how fast do you have to write a guidebook when you're done writing the guidebook? Who edits it? Do locals ever see a guidebook about their destination? Do they have a say? Well, who's the assumed user of that guidebook? I mean, is there some um, thought given to, let's say, minority travelers or travelers with mobility issues? Um, and stuff like that so um, and and Mark also just didn't he's very eloquent and uh, He's really like in terms of travel writing. This is the big leaks like right the day after we had the interview He flew off to London to give a presentation to travel writers um, For lonely planet. So he really is teaching travel writing to you know lonely planet writers uh, so this is a really big deal and he's a smart and really funny guy and he has some really interesting insight into, you know, living here as an expat, what he misses from the US, how the Czechs have changed in the 30 years. I think it's a really super fun interview with a lot of great insight into how guidebooks see the light of day. So I hope you enjoy this. Um, this is it, uh, interview with Mark Baker. All right, so I have the distinct pleasure of sitting here with Mark Baker. Uh, thank you for joining me for the past for this podcast, and uh, let's get straight away to it. Okay, um, my pleasure. Uh, how long have you lived in Prague, actually?
1: Oh, that, when you live in Prague a long time, that's a difficult question because <laughs> there's always a bias. You know, at the beginning when you first move to a place, um, you want to emphasize how many years you've been in a place. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's a long-winded answer to your question. Um, the answer is almost thirty years, almost as long as the Velvet Revolution. Wow! But in conversation, I say usually more than ten years. <laughs>
0: okay, uh, so that's like more than half of your life. Really? That's more than half of my life. Yes. Wow! Thank you for pointing that out. That's all right. That's no, that's like, yeah. You're so you lived here for forty. But you're forty years old, right?
1: <laughs> so it's not. It hasn't been thirty
0: years because okay. that's thirty years since the Velvet Revolution, okay. and I moved here in ninety one. So it's twenty okay. eight. Twenty eight years.
1: Still more than half of your life, obviously. Yeah. Say. And um, I didn't live here continuously the whole time. I actually moved back for a few years. So you can subtract that too. So maybe 25 years. Okay. So it's getting better and better. <laughs> okay. Um, are you planning to stay? Um, yes. Well, I'm not planning to leave. Okay. You know, that's my, that's my stock answer for that because um, yeah, I tried to leave once in the, mid, in the mid-1990s. And I found that I was leaving my life in Prague, my friends, my job, my business, and all that. And I found that starting up somewhere else... Was really difficult back then, and somehow that scared me
0: off trying to do it ever since. Okay, um, I think the like the obvious question would be to ask you what's changed in twenty eight years. But I'm going to ask you: Have people changed in twenty eight years here?
1: What a wonderful question!
0: Um, I thought
1: you were going to ask me what's not changed in twenty eight years. Yeah, yeah that's actually was, a very good question. Thank <laughs> you. For me. Well, that's the next question then. <laughs> oh no! Is that how this interview is going to go? Um, yeah, people have changed a lot. In what uh, way? Um, I think people um, people are much friendlier than they used to be. I think they're much more helpful than they used to be. Uh, occasionally, you still get you get people in the post office to smile at you these days. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like it's taking a long time. I mean, I, I think that we've learned from the Velvet Revolution and the fall of the Berlin Wall in all these thirty years. That it's a lot easier to change a political system than it is to change a culture. Mm-hmm. And um and so it seems like it wouldn't be like that, but it's taken a long time to change the culture, but it is changing for sure.
0: For the better? I definitely for the better, absolutely. Cool. Yeah. So what's not changed then? Um <laughs> <laughs> anything you say will be used against you, yeah, obviously. That's true. You know, uh
1: I think the basic character of Czech society hasn't really changed. Which is what? Uh, well, I mean, you would be a better mm-hmm. expert on this than me, but I'm just doing this as an observer of the culture, you know, not necessarily a direct participant. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people are, I think Czechs by and large, I'm going to generalize here. I think Czechs by and large are kind of country people. Uh, they don't, they prefer spending time in the garden to spending time in the city. Um, I don't think that they like, even back then, I don't think they really, I mean, they love, but whether they like spending time in the center of the city is a different Mm -hmm. question. I don't think they did back then. And I still think that they don't now. I think people would much prefer, you know, to, to go to their country house on the weekends, To spend some time with their friends and family in their apartments instead of going out. So I I don't think that that's necessarily... It is
0: changing a little bit, but it's still basically the same. Actually, I think so, true. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, What is the... I mean, you've been living here on and off for less than 30 years. Right. um, Over 10 years, as you say. Um, Yes. What's the one thing you miss the most from the US?
1: The one thing that I miss the most from the United
0: States... It can be anything...
1: Yeah, but I'm afraid I'm going to give you one of those stock answers, you know. Um, still, what's not changed? This is, mm-hmm. a great, this is a great answer to both questions, actually. Um, it it still takes the better part of a day to do something as simple as arrange a plumber to come to your house <laughs> or to go and shop to get the ingredients that you need for a complicated dinner. Yeah. And in the United States, you can take care of those little things in an hour or a couple of hours or something like that. Yeah. You know, so I, I find that I waste a lot of time here but on the other hand uh it's given me a different appreciation of time in a sense (laughs) i mean i've become more local in that sense that Mm -hmm. i I don't really mind spending a day doing this kind of stuff because you slow down you think about things you know, etc. Sometimes, of course, it's totally frustrating, but uh, but yeah, that would be my answer to that
0: question. All right. So, what you're saying is that the speed of services here, or the lack thereof, uh, like turns us into thinkers. Yes, it's <laughs> well, very philosophical. It, it, yes,
1: it, it, you know, we set waiting up itineraries, yeah. waiting
0: for the plumber. Yeah. You know,
1: God forbid you <laughs> want to make a recipe. You know, cook from a recipe that takes you know a, a couple of visits to different stores yeah. because as good as the stores are getting, and they're much better than they used to be. You, there's still not really one place
0: that you can like a one stop shop. There's yeah. not a one stop shop in yeah. Prague, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, cool. You know, I actually asked this question because we have on the tours, um, we have many study abroad program kids you know, coming right. over, staying for yeah. half a year. Right. And I asked, what's the one thing you miss the most? You know what the most common answer is? Um, no, tell me. Kraft mac and cheese. Really? Yeah. <laughs> That is the single most <laughs> but, common you know, answer to this. Yeah,
1: okay, that's funny. But, you know, we said there's not one stop shopping for yeah. food in Prague, right? Mm-hmm. But if you're willing to be tenacious about it, you can find almost everything. Oh, I find anything, you know, find yeah. anything, It used to be when I would go home and visit my parents and then fly back, I would come back with a suitcase filled with things that I could only get there. And over the years that suitcase has become a backpack, has become a little bag, has become almost nothing right now.
0: And it's mostly drugs. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. Let's move on to, uh, if I may, to like the travel writing. Right. Yes. um, So I thought about like what the most common, or like my perception of travel writing is like, if you write a travel guide for, um, for, you know, let's say a big publisher. And I came up with this kind of idea. So I'm going to, I wrote it down. Okay. I want to make sure that, I want to ask you if it's correct or not. Okay. So you travel on somebody else's dime and get to write about it. Is it as fun as it sounds or is there a downside?
1: Uh, yeah. <laughs> of course, this is like a good question.
0: It's sort of a wink, obviously. Yeah.
1: Um, travel on somebody else's dime, that's, that's, uh, that's a little bit of a misnomer in a sense. Yeah. Um, well, tell me. Well, uh, of course, you get paid to travel, but that money that you make while you're writing mm-hmm. is uh, money that you need to live on. You know, sure. if you're a serious travel writer, then you're trying to write. You're trying to live from what you write. So, what it is basically is a job. You mm-hmm. know, uh, and you have to treat it like a job.
0: Um, whether so it's, it's not a vacation, basically.
1: You know, that's the biggest misconception I think about being a travel writer that there is out there. Um, people often tell me. You know, what a dream job it is to write a guidebook or to write a travel article or something like that. And it definitely is. It's a wonderful job Mm -hmm. to have. But, you know, when I travel, um, I really don't feel like I'm on vacation. I I can't switch it off. You can't. can't. That's actually one of my questions. No, you can't switch it off. And I tried an experiment this summer. I, 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 I purposely took no assignments. I took my car. I drove it east to Ukraine. I pointed it south to Romania uh-huh. drove to Greece turned around came up through Macedonia and Serbia I mean I was I wanted to see all these places but I wanted to experience these places not writing about them purposefully you know because I realized that when I'm writing about a place I don't enjoy the place in in the way that you really want to enjoy a place it's I'm really trying to knock it out of the park in terms of writing a good article or a book but
0: I'm not really uh, experiencing it as yeah. you know as somebody who's really mm-hmm. enjoying it okay so you can't that was my one of my questions so you can't, can can no. you maybe take like a like go to bali and just like land the beach no for a no week? no no
1: i'll tell you Jan. uh when i was in ukraine um i was i i i i didn't line up any commissions i didn't even tell any editors i was going i'm not writing for lonely planet nothing but i couldn't help but walk past a nice little coffee shop and think Oh that would be a great addition. But yeah. oh, wait a minute, I'm not writing a book on you. Yeah. Go to a place for dinner and look at the prices and think, "Oh, this would fit in the medium price." Oh, wait a minute, I'm not writing a book.
0: So mm-hmm. it's
1: almost impossible to write it
0: to, to
1: take it out of your mind.
0: Yeah. All right. Look, I mean, honestly, I mean, I understand when we travel and eat out uh, we think like, oh, yeah, this would be great for a food tour. Yeah, you no. have the same problem, yeah, right? Sure. Even in Prague, Absolutely. you walk around and think, not going to go on the food tour. Yeah. Oh, well, let's think about it for the food tour. Yeah,
1: And you're like, well, Jan, we're not actually like scouting out food tour places tonight. We're just having a nice
0: dinner together. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. You're right. Okay, so let's talk about like when you really are on an assignment. and uh-huh. you wanna... So how does that happen? Who? Um, well, well, first let's talk about, if I may how you became a travel writer. How did you land your right. first job?
1: You know, uh, I I don't think anybody really sets out to become a travel mm-hmm. writer. I really don't. I think it's something that you kind of fall into when you've found out that what you're really doing is not really pushing all the buttons for you, not mm-hmm. satisfying you. Um, for me, um, I always knew that I could write. Um, so I naturally went into journalism after college and worked for many years in journalism. You know, I was working Mm -hmm. for newspapers and magazines. I worked for Bloomberg, a wire service. Um, I worked for Radio Free Europe as an editor Mm -hmm. Um, and I loved it. But uh, at some point I felt like I really wanted to get out of the office on some days. Uh, I I hated looking out the window and seeing a beautiful summer day and thinking, what am I doing in this room? So at at one point I just kind of said to my bosses, "I'm, I'm, I'm leaving um, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do after that. Um, I thought travel writing might be a possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, I decided to take a trip to get to just to clear my mind from quitting my job. And I went to Morocco. It's kind uh-huh. of a little story about how I got into it. I went to Morocco by myself, and I was hiking around. I was checking my email, and uh, out of the blue, I received um, I received a letter from an email from an editor in New York for Fodor's, mm-hmm. you know, which is a okay, company yeah. that I. Kind of knew they'd heard through the grapevine somehow that I was not working. And, the, and he was asking me if I knew anything about Slovenia mm-hmm. and if I wouldn't mind going to Slovenia to help them update a guidebook because their writer just fell out for no reason or got sick or something like that. Of course, I answered that I'm, you know, total expert on Slovenia yeah, and all that course, stuff. Obviously. Of course, I never had been to Slovenia before in my life. Um, and so I accepted it and I did it. So... You know, and it worked and, Uh you know, it wasn't that badly paid and uh, it was really fun to do. So I thought, well, I can keep on doing this maybe. And I just kept on applying first through Photors, then to Lonely Planet. I also worked for Fromers. And once you do one or two of these guidebook projects, they kind of pile on and editors are willing to take a look at you. And you get more and more and more. That's, you know, the secret.
0: So first you lie. and Then <laughs> like any you good build, job, you, you fake it. On, you, know, you fake it <laughs> and until fake you make it. it. You,
1: make it. Yeah, absolutely. you fake okay. it and fake it and fake it. <laughs> okay. Listen you know. well, kids. Anyway, the, the answer to your I question, the the short answer to your question is that I never planned to become a travel mm-hmm. writer. I just kind of fell into oh, it.
0: Oh, nice. Do you do you still think that today it's a viable uh, job?
1: it's changing a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if it's a viable job or not. I mean, I, I think it's barely viable for me and I've mm-hmm. been doing it for, uh, for many years, um, to succeed in travel writing as in any form of freelance writing, you need to have a lot of different revenue streams. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to build up a lot of stools to sit on, you know, a lot of okay. legs under the stool, however you want to, uh, to phrase it. Um, uh, there are technologies offering us some different avenues for, um, you know, for revenue, you know, we're doing a podcast it would mm-hmm. be something that was even unthinkable back when I was first starting out as a travel writer. Um, there's a lot of people who are experiencing success on the web, in YouTube, on Instagram. Yeah. So, I mean, the matrix, the, the the payment model is changing a lot. I don't know what it, the future is going to bring in terms of money, but I think, it's, I think it's going to be viable for at least a few people.
0: Yeah. Okay. People um, are going to make it. Yeah, absolutely. So um so that is that the one I want to ask like what's the one thing that's changed the most like uh since you started doing this? Is it this, like that the matrix is getting like the people there's more people in the business, maybe through different platforms kind of writing, like travel writing that is just not like guidebook writing, but it can be, you know,
1: I mean blogging
0: uh, or podcasts in the YouTubes. I've been a travel writer now
1: full time for twelve years. I started mm-hmm. in two thousand and seven. The biggest change, obviously, has been technology in every way. You know, I mean, uh, my first writing assignment was for a print guidebook that was not even available on the web. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so, you know, the whole development of the web, the whole development of of the mobile web, of apps, um, of audio and video, of podcasts and Instagram. I mean, yeah, I think that's the biggest change. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, Let's talk about how a guidebook gets done. Okay. Okay. So sure. how, how, who pitches a destination? Can you reach out, let's say to uh, voters or like Lonely Planet and right. say, Hey, I want to do Czech Republic again, or yeah. do they, is it mostly the publishers basically, you know, pitching destination, like looking for somebody to write about it? Right. That, that's a great question. Uh, the,
1: it's, it's the decision, excuse me, the decision mm-hmm. on whether to publish a guidebook or not is made by the publisher. Mm hmm. They usually come up a year in advance. They come up with a list of titles based on their marketing, based on their projections for how well that title is going to sell. So what they do is they come up with a list of titles. Ordinarily, as a writer, you're not going to be able to see that at all. But Lonely Planet, if you're in the stable of writers for a long time, they'll share their publishing list with you so that you can think about the books that you might want to pitch for mm-hmm. later down the road. Okay. So you you look... So for the most part, for Fromers, for Photos, for all the other guys out there, the editor has to know you're out there and then they come to you and say, are you available to write a guidebook? For Lonely Planet, it's a little bit different. You see the list of titles they're going to publish and say, hey, I would love to do that Poland book or I would be great for that Bulgaria book that you're thinking about publishing, that kind of thing.
0: Okay, cool. Nice. Um, How, do you know how, um, what's the like refresh rate? of guidebooks. So if there's a guidebook coming out about Prague, what is like the usually big publishers, what is the refresh rate for, let's say, you know, we need to update the Prague guidebook Mm. or like the Poland book? Yeah, oh yeah, it's never frequently enough. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the biggest frustration of working for a
1: guidebook is the publishers really don't want to invest the money to update the guides as frequently as they really need to be updated. Mm -hmm. But of course, that's the reality of life. We can't change it. the refresh rate depends on how popular the guidebook is. Mm-hmm. For the most popular books, they try to refresh it at least every two years. Oh, wow. And for the books that fall a little bit further down the popularity index, it's three years. And for books that are very seldom, you know, or are lo- really low on the list, it might be as long
0: as four years. Where is Central Europe? In there? <laughs> like, honestly. No. Prague is two to three
1: years. It's one of the most popular okay. guidebooks that they oh. have. Um, but, you know, great question um, Romania, Bulgaria, which we publish now as one book mm-hmm. with both countries together, which neither country really likes, um, yeah. that gets, uh, updated every three or four years. Poland is probably a little bit more popular in terms of a marketing, you know, not more popular as a country, but at least in terms of a guidebook say mm-hmm. from a sales perspective, probably three years. So yeah, central Europe is in the middle tier. Oh, okay.
0: Generally, um, don't you like today write continuously? Because I think because uh, let's get honest here, like we did this uh, interview uh, nearly a year ago and I messed right. up and it was not that like I mean the technology that I used was not that great and like right. you know, it was too long, it wasn't focused. Okay. But I remember you telling me that you write content and you're not entirely sure sometimes if it goes on the web, or on the print. Is that, is my understanding correct? That you just yeah. write content and then they use it on right. different platforms. Yeah, that's, that's a great answer to that question of what
1: has really changed as mm-hmm. part of technology. It used to be when you updated a guidebook that you would sit down with your computer, you would pull up your Word document, and you would write you know, something like that. That changed a lot mm-hmm. around 2012 or something. Now what you do is you, you update um, a database, and you fill yeah. in fields, and then you fill in reviews. And so everything is written around what they call a POI, a place of interest. Yeah. And, uh, and they organize it in terms of POIs, and that gives a publisher the ability to put it in a guidebook if they want, or put it on, out on the mobile web through an app mm-hmm. if they want, or to, to use it in some other technological way, because the information is actually a piece of
0: bite-sized sure. information. Now, because that, can you be proactive with this? Or do you, I mean, do you have to be? For instance, I mean, is there somebody in charge? In, let's say we're sitting in your office, which yeah. is around the corner from Cafe Lounge, okay. which closed. Yes. like three, four months ago. Yes, sadly. Um, yeah, sadly. Um, is there someone who like watches over that and says like, hey, we have to, at least for the online bit, yeah. we have to update this?
1: Uh, you know, it, it's funny. Um, for many guidebook publishers, there isn't really a person. Mm-hmm. I mean, perhaps that would be my job to alert Lonely Planet but because I, I live here, but I'm not required to live in Prague. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's not like they say you have to live here. So they wouldn't. But you know some publishers, Lonely Planet included, have developed this this um, what they call Pathfinders program or local experts program, where they actually hire people to go around and update the CMS, the content oh, management okay. system. So I don't know if Lounge is still in the in the guide, but um, it would be a good
0: test. Maybe I'll take a look at it yeah. afterwards. Um, one last thing about like the planning of the guidebook, sure. when you get a, like a pitch or maybe let's update the Poland book or whatever, right. um, what, is there a brief, is there a definition of, let's say of the end user? Like, yes. do you know who you're writing for? Yes. Like in terms of budget Yes. and you know, in terms of like, who are you writing for? Is yes. there like, um, an ideal or like a, a, yes. a, an assumed reader? Yes. Yes. There's a target
1: reader for sure. Uh, all all of these publishing companies are great about producing documentation. In mm-hmm. fact, they produce more documentation for the writer to read before they do oh, the wow. book oh, than geez. it's more than they want published in pages. Yeah. You know, so. And the document that we get from Lonely Planet and from other publishers is called the product brief. Okay, and that tells us who the target market is, and that also tells us what. Um, what are, the, what are the research goals of this book? We want to highlight more of this and less of this, oh. this destination instead of this destination. We want to be stronger on this and weaker on, well, not weaker, but let's say less strong on this. And that gives the writer a bit of guide, uh, some guidelines for how to approach the research of the new updated edition.
0: Okay. It's because, I mean, um, in the morning, I yeah. posted like an Instagram story uh-huh. and uh, um, asked people to. I'll check it out. <laughs> yeah, suppose so a question like yeah. you know, like how i'm interviewing somebody who oh, writes kind okay. of books you know okay. do you have a question yeah and that was a question um if uh there is like diversity included in the brief like do you write for someone in terms of like race gender mobility issues is this a question that is it's, addressed in the brief yeah
1: another great question
0: that's i uh our thinking about
1: that and I'm, I'm the thinking about publishers is evolving on this question, mm-hmm. like like our awareness is evol- evolving all over the world. It used to be that we would shoot for um, a, an upwardly mobile person or couple. Uh, in the early days, it was a student or a backpacker, and then it became a kind of a couple without any children. And then, of course, as um, yeah. as children came along in people's thinking, now the brief is let's shoot for uh, let's make it child friendly, the book, and let's give families, um, you know, real suggestions for what to do as a family together. And I, I don't know if we're pushing the boundaries open on other types of of of, of ethnic uh, definitions, but I'm sure that they're thinking about this. Mm-hmm. You know, um, in the past, it's just been kind of income and age and education related, and then family status. And now I think that we will be thinking a lot more about what people from different backgrounds and different expectation levels can do in a certain destination.
0: It's cutting edge stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, so the second thing, so we're done planning. I mean, that's like, I mean, I want to go like step by step in as what I think is like how a guidebook gets made. The second thing is the travel. Okay. So, um, you've been recently, I think on a, like a Midwest trip or something like this, yes, earlier earlier this year, so. How do you agree? Like, do you agree with a publisher on like the um, the budget, the duration of that trip? How mm. does that trip get set up?
1: Yeah, um, that was a great experience for me because uh, I I say that um, that being a guidebook writer is a little bit like being a Hollywood actor without mm. any fame or okay. any income, because or the rehab <laughs> <laughs> and no drugs. The thing is that once you write a couple of guidebooks mm-hmm. you get typecast very quickly you know so I've written a lot of guidebooks about Poland and Romania and, and Czech Republic etc so I'm like Mr. Central Europe um, For me to get a commission to get to fly to North America and that's what happened earlier this year I received a, a an offer to write a book for Lonely Planet or to contribute to a book. Um, that would take me to the United States, which of course is my home country. And I would research two States, Minnesota Mm -hmm. and Wisconsin for the guidebook on the great lakes. And that was a, a way for me to break out of that typecasting. Yeah. Um, what was weird for me is that of course I'm an American. It should be an easy, easy peasy assignment for me. Just kind of blow into town and know right away what's good and what's not good. I found it a little bit of culture shock when I uh-huh. went there. Trying to <laughs> trying to, to, to research a guide in your home country is not as easy as you might think it is. Um, I had a lot of stuff to learn. And that particular book, to get back to the, your question, mm-hmm. that particular book, what the contents would be, was really determined by the editor on the Lonely Planet side. Okay. You know, they gave me a kind of an idea of what they wanted in the book. They told me what cities they wanted included um and they and they gave me um uh, obviously an amount of money they were going Mm -hmm. to pay me for the book and from that amount of money then I could deduce that they wanted me to travel for 28 days approximately if I did the math it just made Mm -hmm. sense so that's how that gets worked
0: out okay um is um do you visit that location once or are there repeated visits
1: uh, it, you know, it depends on how
0: much you love it. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, sure. No, the city you only go once, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, the place you sleep, it's it's you really only sleep in one place, yeah. and then you
0: research all the other places that will go in the book. So, you know, that's probably that was my next question. How do you research <clears throat> for the travel? Like, I mean, you're a, you you're writing a guidebook that yeah. will be the base, like the basis for the research for many yeah. people to travel. How right. do does a person who writes that research for the travel yeah uh it's
1: tricky uh and you get better as you get Mm -hmm. as you do it more and more often it's like any other thing you know any other craft let's say um yeah when you stay in a hotel you only you don't change the hotel every night so that you can review three hotels that's just silly or four hotels depending on how many days you're in town of course you try to eat at a different place every time for every mm-hmm. different meal. So you get as, as many things, there will be restaurants, <clears throat> excuse me, and bars and coffee shops, etc., that you simply didn't visit yourself. That's, that's okay. how it is. But you do visit, I mean, visit, meaning you didn't actually eat have a coffee there or yeah. eat yeah. there or something. You did visit it. You know, every, every place you do physically go to, you observe who's go, go there. You ask people whether they like it or not. Mm-hmm. You just take in a lot with your eyeballs. Um, you, you, you collect research and notes on the ground about a place that you couldn't find when you Google it, you mm-hmm. know, so you couldn't do this research back home, you know, in anything from who goes there, what the, what, the, what the menu looks like, how clean the place is, what the walls look like, what's the decor. I mean, those are all things that go into your notebook. So, I mean, you can get a pretty good composite of a place, even if you don't necessarily have a coffee there. You, sure. you, you kind of get a feel for who, who goes there.
0: Well, my understanding is that, for instance, if you're a Michelin Guide, you know, inspector, you know, like you know the, the guidebook about restaurants, mm-hmm. and you know, they do also like hotels and stuff. Right? Is that they have a badge, and then you know, after eating, they can show that badge, and basically, you know, they can say, "Can I see the kitchen?" And they'll let them see the kitchen. Are you kidding? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, like that's how it works. And usually, <clears throat> like they say, they reveal their identity. like right. I'm a I'm a Michelin Guide inspector. I would like to see the kitchen, and usually, I mean they will let you see the kitchen. As a Lonely Planet guidebook writer, is there a badge? Like, you know, if you're, like, honestly, you're in a, you're in a you know, city. The badge of honor. Yeah, the badge of honor. Uh, is there a tattoo or like a handshake? Or, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, maybe, you sorry, said, you said, I can't answer this. Because you can't sleep in every hotel, but can you go to a hotel and say, hey, I'm writing a guidebook. Can I see a room? Yes, I do that a lot, actually. I, mm-hmm. I,
1: in fact, when I... If I have the, you know, that's, that's the basic way you have to do it. Um, so normally I would go up to the reception desk and I would ask, um, you know, uh, about the hotel who comes here, etc. They know that I'm not going to stay there just by the way that I'm asking the questions. And then I say, would it be possible to see a room? And okay. that question succeeds 80% of the time.
0: All right. 20% of the time. What do you think?
1: It's either too, it's either booked too up busy, yeah. or the reception desk is too busy. And yeah. I'll tell you one <clears throat> quick story yeah, <laughs> I was uh researching hostels in Bucharest uh-huh. for Lonely Planet actually. Okay. And I went to the hostel, I went to the lady who was the girl who was working behind the desk, and it was really nice, nice hostel, got good reviews. I was really expecting a great uh experience. So I went to the desk and I said, uh, Hey, this looks like a great place. And she was so she was so um, enthusiastic and she showed me all over the place. She showed me rooms and the laundry room and the kitchen room and all that stuff. And then she said, um, don't you want to stay in our hospital? And I said, well, um, I'm, actually, I'm actually researching this for a guide. And she was so angry with me that she kicked me out of the oh, hospital. Wow. <laughs> <So it> can, <laughs> she was Did like, that, you tricked me. Oh, you really? pretended you were going to stay here and you didn't uh-huh. stay here. I think she overreacted. I laughed yeah. and I, I kept the hustle in, of course, and I gave it a very nice review. And okay. well, you know, It shouldn't suffer just because of one employee, but um, but she was really ticked off. So oh, some man. sometimes people, receptions don't want to sit there and answer endless questions about a
0: place. But you say, oh, hey, I write a guidebook for Lonely Planet before you start asking questions, right? I do not. You do not? I do not. I just walk up to the desk and I say... Um,
1: Hey, this looks like a nice place. What kind of guests come here? Oh, we're a business hotel mostly. Oh yeah, but we get some tourists. Oh, that's great. And, um, you know, blah, you don't blah, get blah. called
0: like security <laughs> like, like, only one time, yeah, only, one only, time. One time. Okay. Only,
1: only one time only one time I was researching for a photo it's not lonely. Planet, uh-huh. And we had to, we had on our, on our, <laughs> on our sheet, we had this mandatory question that we had to ask receptionists: do you allow pets to stay here? You know? Uh-huh. So I asked the question as I said, so I went down the thing. I said, Oh, by the way, do you allow pets to stay here? And, um, and, and the woman said, that depends. What kind of animal do you have? And I said uh, Oh, I don't have an animal. I'm just
0: asking the question. <laughs> like, then she was, like, <laughs> then she was Like, okay, what is this, this freak this out? Is, this is yeah. A, yeah we've right, got yeah. a freak in the lobby. You know, oh, things, wow. You know. Okay. Yeah, all right. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, when you get like, let's say the two States, yeah. Right. Wisconsin. Minnesota and Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Uh, yeah, right. Are you completely free to choose your route? Yes. Yes. As a matter of fact, uh,
1: uh on this trip i mistakenly um i mistakenly uh, planned my route to begin in minneapolis mm-hmm. and to end in wisconsin and okay. milwaukee but i didn't realize at the start of my trip that the national basket the national collegiate basketball association uh basketball tournament was in minneapolis so okay. um <laughs> So I tried to get, uh, hotels and uh, anything to book anything. And I was getting things like $1,500 a room and stuff. So oh, it was geez. ridiculously e- too expensive. You know, that would, that would have killed my budget in a, in a few nights. So, so what I did is at the last minute, I completely changed the whole thing. I flew into Minneapolis, but I immediately drove east to Wisconsin. And then I did Minneapolis at the end later. of the trip, yeah. 28 days later, well after the basketball tournament. Oh, yeah. And once the hotel prices had fallen back yeah, to normal. Sure.
0: Cool. Um, Now let's talk about like, so the travel's done uh, and you're writing the actual, do travel writers get writer's block? Is it sometimes difficult to write?
1: Yes. Um, The biggest tip that I would ever give to a would-be travel writer is to either try to do some of the write-up on the road or Mm -hmm. to do copious, make copious notes. Mm -hmm. Because the hardest thing about writer's block is to try to put yourself back in that situation two or three or weeks later or a month later or something. Everything is the spontaneity of the moment. is really lost and it's very difficult to remember, you know, what, what did the restaurant seem like? What were the sounds like, etc. So those are details that you need to write. But if you've done your note writing, once you get home, just reading through the notes will bring back those memories, memories. and it's yeah. very effective. So you need to do that. But yeah, you get writer's block all the time. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's terrible.
0: Is it um, because I'm thinking? You know, I'm guessing that one destination basically speaks to you more than different ones. Yes. But you still want to give it a chance in the guidebook. Do you sometimes have to like write against your own self in a way that you, you like? You think like you know, hey, I know I'm subjective here because you know maybe blah right. blah blah. This happened to me on the road. Yeah. But you know this probably won't happen to everybody else. Is there something that you have to basically rule yourself out of the equation and just you know? Don't, r- that,
1: does that happen? It, it's a great. It's it's a great way to determine um, when you're going to get writer's block because it's a lot harder to write about something that you're not that enthusiastic mm-hmm. about. Yeah. Um, so when people ask me how do I solve writer's block, I always tell them um, write the easy bits first. Write the things that you're really excited about that you want to write about. Yeah. Just focus on that and get some momentum going. If I can't write about something, um, it's a good it's 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 a really good indication that. Either I don't really know what I'm talking about yet and I need more research, which is always Mm -hmm. possible. Or that I just didn't really like the place that much myself.
0: Hmm. Do national boards, like tourism boards, ever get involved in this? Yes. Um,
1: For me personally, national tourism boards are really, really helpful for giving me ideas about what to write about. The, The people behind the counter are usually pretty friendly. They're usually pretty clued in. A big part about updating a guidebook or writing a travel article is to find out what's new in a destination. So it's easy to walk up to one of those places and look at the brochures and say, yeah, I know about all that stuff, but any new, great new hot attraction or restaurant or cafe that I should know about,
0: Mm -hmm. and they know about those things. So they're great for that part. Cool. Um, It's. uh Do you have to send your content like on a daily basis somewhere? Like, is there some like I'm. I'm want to focus on like your uh relationship with like uh, the publisher or the editor. Like, Mm -hmm. do you write everything in bulk and send it all in, or do you have to write like different passages first? They want to see something, maybe. Absolutely. A week later, yeah. They say maybe. Hey, stay. They steer you in the right direction. No. Maybe listen, this is not what we want. We want something else. Oh, no. (laughs) I can see you've never worked as a freelance writer.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No. I mean, to all your editors out there, sorry about this. Yeah, exactly. The last thing you want to do is to let your editors see your copy too soon in advance. (laughs) Because, of course, they're going to sit there all day and poke at it and suggest different ways to do it and blah, blah, blah. So what you want to do is to turn it in. Right on deadline, or like right before deadline. That's mm. the key. Okay. You know, um, <laughs> <clears throat> there are some people sometimes, Lonely Planet as well, will say, We'd like to see a sample of your work first, okay. just to see that, of course. If it's in your contract, you have to do it. And then sometimes you want the editor to see it because you need some help or advice. Mm-hmm. And I just finished up a project this past week on best places to eat in Europe. And uh, I was working with my editor at Lonely Planet pretty closely, you know, trying to send her some ideas that I had for coverage. Because I genuinely needed help, but normally, no. I mean, y- y- editors are great. I love you, editors. Yeah. But they can really make your life miserable if, yeah. they, if they tinker around with your text too much.
0: Have you ever had a like a major spat with an editor?
1: <sighs> you know, no, I've never. Yeah. Oh, okay, I have had a major spat with an oh. editor. Actually, I just thought about that. Yeah, uh, I don't know if I should talk about the publisher or not, but uh, you don't have to. I just it like... was—I'll uh, tell you just briefly what happened. It was a misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a publisher that I had developed a book for on Prague early on. In fact, I, I built the book from zero pages. They just gave me, you know, uh, an empty space basically and said, "Give us a guidebook." I did that. I worked pretty hard on on the first edition. That company uh, went out of business. Actually, oh. not because of my book. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but. But then came back into business when the family rebought the business. Mm -hmm. Then they came back to me for edition number two. And I thought that they were asking for an update of edition number one. But what they were asking for was that update. But then also the same reviews but in expanded form that they could put on the web page. Okay, I didn't realize what they were looking for. So when I gave them my updated edition two, they thought that I had really done a poor job. And they were really angry with me and oh. I have never worked with this since, but it's, it's crazy because if, if I had known what they were looking so the for, the brief was not like great. The brief yes. wasn't great. Um, there was a misunderstanding and, um, and you know, I'm angry, you know, mm-hmm. I really yeah. am because, uh, I, you know, I, I worked hard to put them on the map with this book and, um, and, and, you know, yeah. but Hey, it happens, you yeah. know,
0: is the work ever seen by, um, I mean, on your side of publisher side, by a local? By local? You mean yeah. before it's published? Like, well, yeah, sure. Like, so, like, let's say you're writing about, you know, Minnesota, Wisconsin. Yeah. Do they give it to read to, like, a guy who lives there? Like, to see, like, hey, listen, are we missing the point? Or, like, is this what you'd say is, Ah uh, You know, that's, right?
1: that, no. Uh, yes and no. Um, it depends a lot. When when Lonely Planet first ventured out, now I'm talking about Lonely Planet, but it can be for all of them, um, when they first ventured out into Central Europe, they had people from the local countries on hand to make sure that they got the tone right, the accents yeah. right, that they were covering the right places. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, I think it's basically done by journalists who are hired to, to cover a destination, and, and local people really aren't given any kind of say or vetting process um, over the information. But it, it gets to a really funny point, because I often, even in Prague, when I... Uh, tell a person, oh, I write guidebooks about Prague. And they look at me and they're like, you? Yeah, like, yeah. What yeah. do you yeah. know about Prague? <laughs> yeah, okay. You know, and it's true. Yeah. A person who's born and grown up in Prague knows more, has more knowledge about the city in their pinky finger than I'll ever have in my lifetime. But, but yeah. I know I know you're giving me kind of like skeptical look. But that's what they think, and mm-hmm. I, I kind of agree with that skeptical look. Um, but I don't deny that they really know the city really well, and um, and maybe in ways that I can't know it because I'm, I'm really not part of the culture, just kind of like I said, an observer. Um, But I do know the reader better than they do. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. You know, so I do know what people who come to Prague want to see and want to do, maybe much better than that person might ever know, in a sense. And you know, you guys. You guys are exceptions because you work in this industry. But the typical person, you know, who works in a, in a shop or a factory here in the Czech Republic, they don't really know what visitors like to do when they come to Prague. They wouldn't have the first idea, really. Yeah. You know? So that's how I try to bridge the, the, the
0: gap, you know, in cultural knowledge with something else, reader knowledge. When you're writing about, let's say, Prague, um, is um, is like uh, the the whole issue of, quote-unquote, um, over-tourism right. it ever, like, you know, do you ever like, do you pay any attention to it or not really? Is it something that it's a job of a travel writer to deal with? Or?
1: You know, again, I personally feel very guilty mm-hmm. about encouraging more and more people to come to Prague when I realize that many months of the year, not, not every month, not this month, but the city is filled to brimming with tourists. Yeah. You can't really handle anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, When you asked me earlier about uh, some types of issues, ethical issues that were Mm -hmm. kind of bubbling up through the travel writing industry, like whether we're writing for, you know, different groups of people and different expectations, um, we are very aware as publishers, you know, and I'm talking about all the publishers, very aware of the problems of modern tourism, which means, Mm -hmm. you know, sustainability, which means climate change, which means over tourism, you know, which means the destruction of culture by tourism. Um, or the p- potential for destruction of culture by tourism. And we're really working those things out, as is the whole travel
0: industry. But everybody's aware of it. Sure. Okay. One last question yeah. about guidebooks. Okay. And I have one more question. Okay. Um, is there a feature for printed guidebooks? Going for is there a future? Like, do you think this is well? I mean, um, I'm, I'm really honestly, I don't know what the sales are. Yeah. But like, given like that, you know, the the data is so easy to access. Right. Everybody has a smartphone. Right. And then, um, you know, you can there's an app for that. You know what I mean? Right. Um, is there a like printed guidebooks? Do you think there's a future? Oh, so you said printed guidebooks.
1: Printed. So I was going to point out that guidebooks can also be on your telephone. No, 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 no I mean it's printed ultra. guidebooks. Right. Um. I don't know. Mm. I really don't know. I, I think there will always be an, uh, 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 a market for printed guidebooks in places where people feel they need that extra layer of security. Mm-hmm. If you're going to a country whose language you don't speak very well at all, or, or, yeah. or you know, or you're going to a culture that you're really unfamiliar with, you know, say if you're from North America and you're going to travel in Africa, for example, or in Asia, yeah. um, in Central Asia. I think you're going to feel like you need a guidebook just to, just to let you know that it's okay. Mm-hmm. In, unless you've really traveled there a lot, you know, where guidebooks might not matter. And, you know, I hate to say it where they might not matter someday are for, you know, trips to familiar cities in Europe yeah. or North America, you know, pe- places where you can short term uh, trips, where you can, where you can find your information um, pretty much on your telephone. But, I would say in defense of guidebooks, mm-hmm. you know, allow me one sentence. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> you have two sentences okay. to I defend gotta, guidebooks. I know, I got to Go. think about it. Yeah. A guidebook, by definition, is a comprehensive, efficient way to approach destination. Mm-hmm. That's the whole reason that they exist. So if you're not comfortable thinking, I have a guidebook, think about yourself that you have a
0: textbook to a definition. Okay, nice. Nice. How about big publishers and like local independent publishers? <laughs> Sorry, how about big publishers, local independent publishers? What do you think? Like, uh, you know, let's say, like, yes, just, you know, we write a guidebook. Yes. I mean, it's not about Prague, it's about food in Prague, obviously, right. but there's, you know, like super guides, I uh, don't know if you know by Mira Valesh and yeah. that, that no, guidebook. Yeah, I just and saw,
1: I just, there's 111 great things to do in Prague. Yeah, there's then, so uh, many. Uh, then like, Honest Guide now exactly, has a guidebook. Honest, you know? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, of course, I love Honest Guides, but I was, I met those guys at a blogger conference mm. in, um, in Ostrava last yeah. summer in, uh, in 2018 and they were terrific. They were big heroes and all that stuff. So, you know, they're doing great stuff, but they were poking so much fun at bloggers and yeah, guidebooks and yeah, everything. Sure. When I found out that they actually had their own guidebook, yeah. I was like, all right,
0: okay. That's how
1: this works. Okay. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> Bobby, have you seen that guidebook? It's not like a
0: traditional guidebook. No, though. no, no. I, I got, yeah. it, I got yeah. it. I got it. I
1: got it. But you got to be careful at, you know, yeah. at who okay. you poke fun at. Um, <clears throat> anyway. Uh, I think that there's always going to be room for local guidebooks. Yeah. You know, I really do. And maybe that's the future of guidebooks. Is, and maybe the future of big publishers is to localize and localize mm. and localize.
0: Yeah. You know, I don't know. Who knows? We'll see. <laughs> um, one last thing. Okay. It's, a, it's a question that I'm going to ask everybody. Okay. The one nasty thing you like to eat. Like a big, you know, guilty pleasure. The one nasty thing yeah. that I like to eat. Guilty pleasure. No one's looking.
1: Ah uh, yeah 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 that's really great. Um
0: do you have one? I love
1: one? I I I I generally love nasty stuff. Okay. I mean, you know,
0: let me think about that. This is a safe space. Nobody yeah. will. This is a, our podcast. Nobody will hear this. Ah, nasty thing to eat. <laughs> I'm going to tell you mine first. Okay. okay. I, I have so many, but okay. I can start with one. So do you know a Tatranka? You know, like a yeah, Horalka? Of course. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. when uh, I was uh, in high school, well, right. college, uh-huh. um, and I got like the case of the munchies or something, uh-huh. I would take a Tatranka out. Uh-huh. I would take like whatever jam I had in, uh-huh. uh, in uh, the fridge, I would put it on, yeah. on the Tatranka. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Like a thick layer of, let's say, forest fruit jam. Mm. And I would take, do you remember Granko? Mm-hmm. Sure, hmm yeah. Sure. It's still, it's still, it's in, the still in there. Yeah. So I just put it on there. I'll just eat it as uh, It was awful, but Hey, I but was young and you know, <laughs> probably high. So, but you know,
1: but you know, um, I, I cook for myself a lot mm-hmm. and I often make, uh, anything that's left in the fridge kind of concoctions and some of them are really okay. And some of them are really pretty nasty. I mean, I love Czech bar food, for example. Yeah. I so what's your favorite? I like, I like um, hermeline, you How know, that's been nice. dipped in oil and, uh, mm-hmm. and marinated... I can eat aspic, you know. I I know that. I I always,
0: I've been saying this for ten years. That's the next hipster thing. Yeah, really, aspic.
1: Yeah, (laughs) I can do aspic. I don't really care what part of the animal is uh, suspended in the aspic. Nobody knows. You know, (laughs) it's magic. It just happens. Yeah. You know, um, uh, the the thing about traveling around Central Europe Mm -hmm. that I that I really like is that all Central European cultures have this kind of like what you call a nasty secret. You know um your romanians love to eat tripe soup which mm-hmm. is of course soup made from the stomach of a cow yeah, yeah. um and uh mm. that can be delicious that it's can be really absolutely delicious yeah. yeah it can be yeah. you know so maybe that's what you guys you know i'm sure you do this anyways oh, to try to introduce people to the nat oh, do that do okay this is it this is our business idea oh, together really?
0: <laughs> jan and susie's okay. nasty the nasty food taste tour. Of yeah 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 <laughs> the taste of nasty frog. <laughs> coming up soon just check (laughs) the website yeah
1: just not even Prague all around Central Europe take them all around you know
0: okay all right well thank you for that thank you for the idea and for the interview yeah this has been an absolute pleasure my pleasure and uh I hope to see you around and I hope you enjoyed this and uh you know check out some guidebooks that Mark wrote uh, we'll, we'll, I'll link to it in the, um, in the um, post I'll write on the website. Oh,
1: sure. Yeah, please check out the guidebooks, look at the articles, and uh, I also have a blog. So hopefully Absolutely. that uh, Jan will put the URL yeah, on I'll there for everybody to take a look at it,
0: And thank you. Thank you. Alright guys, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Taste of Proud Podcast. And uh please stay tuned for more. Uh don't forget to rate us online and if you have any comments or any feedback, please go to our blog page to let us know. Uh we'll be happy for any tips or any pointers that you may have. Thank you again for listening and until the next time, cheers. Goodbye.